You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts. This morning, we're going to be looking together at chapter 7. And verse 54 through 60, you'll find this on page 916 of the Pew Bible. Following the long speech that Stephen has given, we're going to be reading verses 54 through 60. Hear the word of God. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, as we have seen, before ascending into heaven, Jesus commissioned his disciples to be witnesses for him. And one of the ways in which they would do this would be through martyrdom. Our word martyr is taken from the Greek word that means witness. And history is full of martyrs who sealed their testimony with their own blood. They were willing to forfeit their lives rather than to deny the faith. When David was in the wilderness of Judah, he expressed it in this way. He said, Psalm 63, O God, you are my God. Your steadfast love is better than life. That's the martyr's disposition. It's not natural, it's the fruit of grace. Because only by the Spirit of God can we say something like God's steadfast love is better than life. He led Paul to say, to die is gain. And Stephen believed that. He was the first Christian martyr whose speech we've considered and he had been falsely accused of blasphemy against the temple and the Mosaic law. And in his defense, he traced God's plan of redemption from Abraham all the way to Solomon. And he did this to show that the temple and the law had been fulfilled. He hadn't profaned these sacred elements of Judaism, but he had honored them. That's what he was trying to show them. The Christ had come and the promise had been fulfilled and the Messianic age had dawned. A watershed event. And God was at work gathering his people from all the tribes of the earth. 
And as Stephen rehearsed this plan of redemption, he focused in on the call and the ministry of Moses, who was arguably the most important of all Old Covenant people. Remember how we looked at his speech when he said at the burning bush, Moses met the pre-incarnate Jesus who spoke of the deliverance of his people. Moses would liberate the Israelites from Egyptian bondage and lead them to Mount Sinai. And there he would receive living oracles, the Ten Commandments, and a nation would be born. And from Israel, the Messiah would come. That's what he was saying. But Jewish idolatry was perennial, and the Lord was extremely displeased. And those of the Sanhedrin were sitting in judgment, and they were no different than their fathers. So Stephen said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit, as your fathers did, so do you. And of course, here this man did not mince any words. He, he called it as he saw it. He accused them of betraying and murdering Jesus Christ, whom he called the Righteous One, because he was God's messenger, giving them an opportunity to put, repent and believe. If only they had placed their trust in Christ, all of their sins could have been forgiven. As you can imagine, the leaders were displeased. When they heard this, they were enraged, and his accusations infuriated them. Who was Stephen to impugn the high court of Israel? With fury, they ground their teeth at him, snarling as if they were wild animals. And it reminds me of the passage that was read earlier from John 3. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light. A person who is ensconced in sin cannot bear to be reproved for sin. Isn't that true? Evildoers hate the light of the gospel and sadly they're trapped in their sin. That's what scripture teaches. I was reading this morning out of 2 Peter chapter 2. Perhaps you were too. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. Whatever overcomes you, whatever masters you, to that you're enslaved. And the Sanhedrin at this point was enslaved to their own sin. And they could not bear to be told their own faults. And as I read Stephen's speech, I don't know about you, I get the sense that he realized this was a lost cause. I don't think he ever really believed that he'd be acquitted of the false charges. I think what he was doing here was giving them a last chance effort to share the gospel of Jesus. But before he could extend the offer of the gospel, the Jewish authorities cut him off. They heard these things and they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him like animals growling in a fit of frenzy. And in response, Stephen gazes into heaven. He sees the glory of God, Jesus standing at the right hand of the Most High. And somehow, we're not told how, the heavens opened and he could see the throne. And Christ himself, risen and exalted, was occupying the place of highest honor. It was that to which the Old Testament prophet Daniel referred in his ap ap apocalyptic vision. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And in that Old Testament vision, Jesus is depicted as standing before the Ancient of Days. To him was given authority and dominion and glory and a kingdom that everyone should serve him. And it shows Christ as the glorious risen king and the exalted judge of all the earth. And Stephen saw him standing so as to render judgment on his accusers. The psalmist foresaw the enthronement of Jesus who would sit down as was read. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. But when his faithful servant Stephen was being stoned, Jesus stood. Because you see, a king not only rules by sitting on a throne, but he defends by standing fast in battle. That's the nature of a king. How ironic then, because the Israelite judges are condemning Stephen as they're being condemned by the Lord. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And on the surface, it seemed like Stephen and the gospel were being tried and judged. But things are not always as they seem. Ultimately, it was not Stephen, but the Sanhedrin that was on trial here. Just like every Sunday morning when the gospel goes forth, God holds the world accountable. Being confronted with the claims of Christ, these men sitting on that council were required to give an answer. Embrace the Messiah and inherit eternal life. Reject Christ and you're condemned already. And all of a sudden, with the fury of a crazed lynch mob, they charged at Stephen, dragging him out of the city and stoning him. And it was an awful crime. Rocks of all sizes were hurled at him violently. And in this manner, the first Christian martyr surrendered his life for the kingdom. But as in his life, so in his death, Stephen held fast to the confession of the faith. He called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out then with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. So like his master before him, he entrusted himself to the Father in heaven. And like the Lord Jesus himself, he prayed for the pardon of his persecutors. Now who dies like that? Who asks for mercy on behalf of those who are killing him? I think this must have had an enormous impact upon those who are witnessing, especially Paul. He was one of the bystanders, you know. He was one of those who encouraged and supported the killing of this first Christian martyr. Later in his life, Paul reflects and he says this. When the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Paul never forgot the sight of this godly Christian man being murdered. 
Because he persecuted the church, he considered himself the chief of sinners. Long after he'd been converted, sanctified, mature in the Lord, I'm the chief of sinners. Because you see, by faith in Christ, we're delivered from the penalty and the power of sin. And that's a glorious promise and a welcome reality for believers. But that doesn't mean that our memory of sin's misery is ever erased. The recollection of past sins may return to a believer, and God can use that for good. It reminds us of sin's evil, it keeps us humble. It fosters dependence upon the cross, so it comes back. And I think one of the things we ought to do here is to follow Stephen's example of finding courage and comfort in the person and work of Christ Jesus. Because you see, his martyrdom is just another example of ungodly persecution. All of human history is characterized by the unbelieving animosity toward the godly. We've seen that before. Paul says, just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Make no mistake about it. The forces of evil are opposed to Christians and the church. It may be more intense at some periods of history than others, but always it's simmering. Opposition. Here we see the fury of persecutors compared with the courage and the comfort of the persecuted. The Jewish leaders, being influenced by the devil, acted like devils themselves. And Stephen's penetrating speech pricked their conscience. They were enraged. Literally, it says they were cut to the heart like a saw ripping through their souls. It was conviction, but it wasn't the type that leads a sinner to repentance. They were not cut to the heart like those at Pentecost, but they were pricked in their conscience like Judas Iscariot. The response was the kind of worldly grief that leads to death, and the anger that was expressed was simply the outflow of hard, unbelieving hearts. It makes me think of that scene in Revelation 16 in which the fourth angel pours out his bowl. And it says the people were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Likewise, the members of the Sanhedrin did not repent or give him glory. Because you see, persecution is an ongoing testimony to the truth about the unregenerate soul. Paul says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. When the light of God's truth is pressed upon the conscience, enmity is aroused. It's a little like putting a stick in glowing embers and a flame shoots up. I don't know if you've ever done that. Touch a sinner at the very core of his being, and if grace doesn't convert him, it'll make him stand up and defy the Lord. 
because by nature fallen human beings hate that truth which exposes wickedness. I'm struck by what Solomon says in Proverbs 9, verse 8. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. He's a natural man. He has no spiritual life. He glories in his shame. So if he is a moralist, and I say that his deeds are merely splendid sins, he'll hate me for it. Or if he is some sort of modern Pharisee whose religion is all externals, and I tell him that he's outside the kingdom, he'll react in anger. Or if he's a worldly man, and I tell him, according to Scripture, you lack the Holy Spirit and you don't belong to Christ, he'll curse me. If I expose his pride or accuse him of slander or point to his uncharitable spirit, he'll rise against me. For such as these, the blood of Christ won't cleanse and heaven will make no room. And that person's hope is nothing but a spider's web which is easily brushed aside. Stephen was preaching to such men as this. And we often face such people in the world. Some of us were those kind of people in the world. Myself, first and foremost. Don't be surprised at the opposition you may face in a sin-cursed world. In the face of such adversity, we can draw courage and comfort from Christ. This is what he said to Joshua. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Don't be frightened. And don't be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Despite the opposition. And then let's recognize that faith in Jesus Christ distinguishes between life and death. Stephen called upon Jesus so that all, even though he died, yet in Christ he is alive forevermore. When Peter stood before the Sanhedrin, this is what he said. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Notice at the outset he said there is salvation. That in and of itself is a great blessing. It's more than we can say of the fallen angels for whom there is no room for repentance. But you see, salvation is offered to sinners, and yet it's received only by those who trust in Jesus. Because by sin, man has dishonored God's majesty and outraged His holiness. And divine justice... It demands that the penalty of death be inflicted for such crimes. If you dishonor the majesty of God and you outrage the holiness of His throne, divine justice demands death. And unless that demand is satisfied, there can be no salvation from God's wrath. That's the teaching of Scripture. So out of sheer love, and mercy, God determines to save some. He framed a plan of redemption to which Stephen referred. And his grace is evident from the fact that he's willing to accept the satisfaction from Christ. 
Don't we see that he could have demanded that from each one of us? And that's an eternal debt. But he sends Jesus. And he sends Jesus to satisfy that demand of justice. And he's willing to accept that satisfaction in our place. And then he requires nothing of us but faith. And by the way, that's a gift too. So salvation is by grace. All of it. And the unbelieving world doesn't like to be told that that's the only way of salvation. That kind of exclusivity wounds the pride of sinners. Why can't it be all of us? Why can't it be everybody? Man wants to go his own way, which is the broad and easy way, we're told, the way of destruction. And the wise man concurs. He says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Now, self-deceived souls think that their way is fine. It all seems right to me. Why should the way of faith in Christ be any better than my way? But theirs is the way of ignorance and folly and worldliness and self-interest. And it's a myth. It's an empty imagination. It's a vain hope. And they're deceived. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Stephen's courage was the fruit of faith in him. And the Sanhedrin's animosity was rooted in their unbelief. Stephen's faith is built on a solid foundation, and their hopes were built on sand. And therein we learn the importance of building upon a sure foundation. Let me illustrate. On April 30th, 1976, not too long ago, Evelyn Moores, an experienced climber, attached a rappelling rope to a drain pipe grating on the roof of the Mark Twain South County Bank. She had once scaled the 14,410-foot Mount Rainier in Washington State, an experienced climber. So this rappelling exercise for her from the bank building would have been routine, but for one miscalculation. The drain pipe grating to which she attached her rope wasn't anchored. Regrettably, numerous bank officials and their friends watched as the drain pipe gave way and Evelyn Moores plummeted to her death. Her faith in the grating was fatally misplaced. She had no sure anchor. And the principle is aptly applied in the spiritual realm. There's only one anchor of the soul. There's only one anchor that holds fast through life and death. Isn't that what we profess this morning? My only comfort in life and death is that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a sure foundation. And I want us from this to note the privilege of believing the gospel and the peril of not believing the gospel. 
John 3 was read. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you hear what he's saying? Fallen human beings come into this world already condemned for guilt. The Bible says that in Adam we've sinned, and so in him we're already guilty. The actual sins that we commit, and we commit many of them, they simply add to condemnation. And therefore, the unbeliever who rejects Christ is condemned already. But for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. And as he stood before that Supreme Court, Stephen placed life and death before his judges. And the Jewish leaders did not believe in Jesus, and as far as we know, they perished. This morning as I speak, life and death is placed before you. He who refuses to trust in Jesus is already condemned. Already. The privilege of believing is the enjoyment of pardon and eternal life, and the peril of not believing is the endless punishment of dying in one's sins. Faith in Christ takes away the sins. Unbelief keeps the sins upon them. Through faith in Christ, a believer is made a child of God and an heir of heaven. And we've said this before. He will spend eternity exploring and enjoying the realms of blessing. As the Narnians would put it, forever going further up and farther in. We'll spend eternity further up, farther in. But through unbelief, a sinner remains a slave to Satan and a subject of punishment. And to be quite honest with you, words are insufficient to describe the agony of those whose sad lot is to spend eternity in hell. So dreadful is that that Jesus spent a lot of time warning against it. And as Stephen was dying, he was permitted to see the Son of Man in his glory, and it was a privilege granted to him by the Father through the Spirit. The heavens were open. At the right hand of God stood Jesus. And Stephen found comfort in the sovereignty of Christ who has the keys of death. Nobody dies unless Jesus turns the key. No one. And therefore, he almost instinctively called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Because from the far reaches of eternity, the covenant had been made between the Father and the Son. The Son agreed to do the Father's will, to fulfill the law, and as I said, to satisfy divine justice. He agreed to that. The Father agreed, on the other hand, to reward the Son with unprecedented glory in a chosen people. So Jesus arrived and he got to work fulfilling every stroke of the law. And Paul, reflecting upon this, says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. Isn't that one of the most astonishing things we've ever heard? The divine Son became human. 
He who shares eternity with the Father took on a human soul and a human body. And it's one of the deepest and the most sublime mysteries revealed in the whole Bible. Jesus of Nazareth is God incarnate. <laughs> we say that so often. It almost goes past our heads. He was born of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit overshadowing this virgin, and Christ is supernaturally conceived, and from now into eternity, he'll remain God and man in one person. And then in due course, we're told that he suffered everything that the law demanded in our place and for our good, offering once for all himself, giving blood of infinite worth and efficacy. Peter says that blood is so precious because it belongs to Jesus, who is God. What ran through his veins was so precious that it can redeem the whole church. An innumerable company that nobody can conceive of. The person and work of Christ is a sure foundation upon which to build our faith. What a great work he's accomplished. And Stephen tried to explain this to the unbelieving Sanhedrin, but to no avail. They rejected it. But one need not reject it to lose out. The apostle says, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? He says nothing there of rejecting it. By simply neglecting it, we lose it. There is no escape, apparently, for someone who is careless about the things of Christ. Wouldn't you say with me that it's the most irrational thing to neglect so great a salvation? What rational man would neglect a vast treasure that is freely offered to him? Or what sane person would neglect a medicine that was capable of saving his or her life? God offers us everlasting life in Christ and an unfading inheritance. And can anybody think that the things of this fallen world are more important than that? So I conclude by saying these things. Everyone to whom this gospel comes must decide one way or another. And I believe it's the height of folly to think that there is any other way of salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only means by which a sinner can be saved. It's the one thing necessary. And yet far too many forfeit eternal life by simple neglect. You know, there was one member of the Jewish Sanhedrin who embraced the offer. There's probably another one too, but at least this one. Mark 15, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Here was a man looking for the kingdom, expecting the promised Messiah. He had received Jesus as the Christ, and in so doing, he had become a Christian. 
And Luke says that he was a good and righteous man who did not consent with the court. And John describes Joseph as a disciple of Jesus, but secretly. So prior to the crucifixion, he had taken no public stand for Jesus. Perhaps he was waiting for him to be openly acknowledged as the Christ. We don't know. But when he was crucified, God called Joseph to make public his faith. And the Holy Spirit gave him courage to perform an important mission. Here was a man who had been condemned, mocked, spit on, and crucified as a criminal. And it required heroic determination to go against the mob mentality. And when everybody else fled, Joseph boldly petitioned Pilate for the body. It was a courageous stand for truth in the darkest hour of human history. And the Spirit thought that his example was worth recording for our imitation. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let's not be ashamed to confess him before an unbelieving world. It may cost much. You might be the object of laughter, mockery, persecution. But never forget the day that's on the horizon. And remember that the Lord knows our frame. And he fills us with his spirit. And he will give us grace to help in time of need. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.